Welcome to Spin It, where the worst of times can become the best of times. I'm your host, Stephanie Malik, an award-winning crisis management expert and business consulting strategist. Along with my team of experts at S. Malik Enterprises, I have worked with thousands of high-wealth individuals and businesses over the last 25 years to create customized approaches for crisis management and business consulting to ensure they take their careers, relationships, and companies to the next level. On Spin It, we pursue purpose and passion, aspiring to uncover the true story behind every guest's successes and failures, removing the mystique behind what it takes to be truly successful from those that have actually done it. I'm chatting with executives and entrepreneurs all over the globe to understand how they turned obstacles into opportunities to grow not only themselves, but their businesses. I want to impact and inspire you and as many people as possible, not by blurting out the same old motivational phrases, but with the truth and authenticity behind real success, along with the roadmaps and methodologies it takes to get there. Whether it was a scandal, a broken business model, or simply navigating the noise, we want you to learn from our mistakes. It's all in how you spin it. Today, we'll be speaking with Frank Shamrock. Frank, the legend Shamrock, is a retired MMA fighter, entrepreneur, motivational speaker, and philanthropist. He was the first person to ever hold the UFC middleweight championship and retired as a four-time defending undefeated champion and the number one ranked UFC fighter in the world during his reign. He was named Fighter of the Decade for the 1990s and holds the world record for the fastest knockout. During his childhood, Frank was faced with emotional trauma when a stepdad physically and emotionally abused him, bending his arms and tearing out his knees. He would lock him in the closet, make him live in the backyard, and kick him out of the house. His anger and pain led him to start sniffing gasoline and hallucinating. Nobody knew what was happening to him. He became a ward of the state of California at the age of 12 and a prison inmate at 18. But through how Frank spun it, he turned that experience into resilience and success by becoming an undefeated UFC champion and a legend. By the age of 22, his name was known around the world as a champion. Welcome to the show, Frank. Hi, Frank. Thank you so much for joining. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I want to get right into the content and talk about obstacles to opportunities. And I know growing up, that you were adopted at 21 and had a pretty tumultuous childhood. Can we talk about that for a little bit? For sure. Yeah. Great. So first of all, tell me about getting adopted at 21. What was that all about? Well, I left home when I was 11. And so I became a ward of the state uh, by the time I was 11. And then I went into the, um, you know, California youth system. And so I went from, you know, various group homes and foster homes and um, I kept getting in trouble. So that eventually led to more security, and I eventually ended up at the Shamrock Boys Ranch. And that's how I have the name Shamrock, because the um, owner of the ranch, Bob Shamrock, eventually adopted me uh, when I was 21. That's amazing. So how long before Bob adopted you, how long were you at the ranch before that happened? Um, well, I was only at the ranch for a couple of years, and then I actually... You know, Bob had become my mentor, my father figure, and really had sort of set me on a path, which, of course, I screwed up. And um, I actually ended up in prison and uh, other homes, and I just kept going sort of on my journey until I ended up in prison. But it was in prison where, you know, we really had the adoption talk. Bob was like, listen, you know, I would have adopted you when you were 18, but 
you know, you're in prison. <laughs> so you're like a little you, damper, little damper on things. Why don't you get your life together <laughs> and, you know, make some plans and stuff. So, you know, we made a plan that I would, uh, you know, get myself prepared, come out, you know, make something of myself, and then he would adopt me as part of that. Okay, so you said trouble from like 11 on. Yeah. Um, I have four kids. <laughs> yeah. The youngest yeah. is 11. Oh, yeah. Um, All right. So I might send him to you, um, especially oh, yeah. this well, week. <laughs> I can give you some advice. Tell him not to throw rocks at trains. I will tell him that. Yeah, I will let huge. him know that it's you huge. said. Huge. Yeah, huge. It's, it's, you're like, it's all bad from there. <laughs> <laughs> it goes downhill. That's the beginning. So 11 years old, you start getting in trouble. Talk to me about home life. Like what was going on at home? What made you get in trouble and what kind of trouble? Sure, yeah. I mean, I really had, you know, I don't have a lot of memory of when I was little. But, you know, my first memories are seeing school psychiatrists and, you know, being in figured out type programs and situations. And, you know, from what I remember, I just remember having a lot of anger and frustration and not being able to, like, communicate or, you know, have good bonds with people. Um, I had anger issues. I had, I had all kinds of issues. Um, so I was always seeing some, you know, <laughs> professional about it. That's how I kind of became aware that, like, I was a little bit different because I was always the one that was in trouble or kicked out or, you know. And yeah, but other than that, everything seemed normal. I mean, really, everything seemed fine. I mean, you know, I had a, because I had no barometer for what was fine or normal, um, it wasn't until I went to juvenile hall. And that was for throwing rocks at a train. That's why I mentioned that earlier. Uh, when I was 10, I threw rocks at a train. And I was arrested. So just one incident ended you in juvenile hall? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in California. Okay, I'm going to take this snippet yeah. and I'm going to go, go. hang hang on, I'm going to grab him. <laughs> and you're like, look at this. Yeah, I know. Well, and so, it, unbeknownst to me, you know, in California, it's a felony to throw rocks at a train. And so I just happened to be the kid throwing rocks at a train that day. But when I went to juvenile hall and I started talking to all the bad kids and I was like, hey, you know, how do you deal with this? And how do you deal with that? And when I was telling them the things that was happening in my home, they were like, what are you talking about? You know, you can't, that's not, that's like child abuse. And so I kind of became aware when I was about 11 that what was happening in my home wasn't very normal. And what was happening was I was made to live in the backyard in the tool shed, like I was being, you know, locked in a closet. And besides physical abuse, there was a series of psychological abuses and stuff that were happening to the kids in the home. I had, you know, there was four of us when I was little, so we all experienced it. Um, but I think I was the most emotional and, and, energetic. So I think I got the most of it because I probably caused, you know, more than the rest. Right, right. And where are you in the birth order? I am, uh, let's see, Perry, Robin, me, and Susie. So I'm third. Got it. Yeah. Got it. So you're kind of middle child. Yeah, I'm in the middle. Yeah, I'm that's the lightning rod that makes things happen. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Where did you grow up? I grew up in um, Anderson, California, which is uh, by Redding, California, Northern California, uh, Northern Central. I know exactly where that from. So I um, grew up bazillion, trillion, trillion years ago in Modesto. No way. Yeah. yeah. I know all about yeah. Modesto. Yeah. yeah I used to live crazy. in Lockford and Lodi. Yeah. And so we used to go to Modesto uh, every once in a while. Yeah. Right. Some Probably for some the crazy clubs like the Tree Frog yeah, Tavern. Clubs, yeah. <laughs> Totally. See, I wanted to yeah. be a blast from the past. <laughs> <laughs> totally was. Yeah, that was good. So Bob adopts you. Did he have parameters? Did he have rules? Did he have, like, tell me what this, like, so when he says, okay, Frank, I want to adopt you and I want you to be part of my family. You need to 
How did he finish that? Uh, there wasn't any real rules. Like it wasn't, I mean, it was implied. I mean, we'd really talked about it even, you know, when I was like third, like 12, like, you know, because I, I really fell in love with Bob and, you know, he really wanted to have kids and he couldn't. And so the group home kind of became his way. And, you know, when Ken, my brother left, who he also adopted, you know, there was just this, this empty part of him. And I, I happened to come along and fill that. And so we just kind of fell in love with each other. But, and he, you know, he was like, a, he was like my first dad, like my first real, I never knew my dad, you know, a series of stepdads, but you know, he's like, nope, this is a, this is how you do it. This is how you become a man. This is how you become a dad. And, and so I just fell in love with that thing, but I couldn't stop myself from, you know, my, my actions and, you know, my drug use, my alcohol, like all these issues that I had brought with me, they just kept going. So when I went to prison, he's like, you know, hey, you screwed up your life, but, you know, this is the role I've taken and this is how you change it. Like, so let's get to work. So it wasn't like, you know, hey, you're done. You know, it's over. It was, yeah, you, you screwed it up, but now let's do the work. And the work was build your body, build your mind, you know, get yourself together and ready for the next thing, whatever the next Into thing Into becoming the champ. Yeah. Well, at the time, the sport didn't even exist. Right. So Bob was just, you know, using athletics and, and development and, you know, team and goals to guide me. And then it just happened to be that the sport came along as I came out. Interesting. And so did you innately want to become a fighter or, or were you just trying to really kind of get the negative energy out? Talk to me no. about the being, being becoming the <laughs> I did fighter. Not want to be a becoming the fighter. <laughs> I am not like a fighter guy. I'm like a nerdy um, green juice guy. Yeah, I'm a green juice guy. <laughs> <laughs> that hangs out at the tree frog. This is going to go somewhere. I'm telling you. Oh my gosh! It's, I know it's really ruining my uh, image here, but but yeah, no, I was actually I was really terrified of fighting. Because I come from a place of abuse. You know, I come from a, a place of uh, where power is out of control and, and I'm the end result, physical pain, you know. So to then step into that world was a huge, huge hurdle for me. And one that took me years to sort of walk through. But yeah, I mean, you know, Bob to his, to being a good dad, to being a good man was like, great, now do the work. Yeah, I'll, I'll check in on you. I'll help you. What do you need? But build your body, your mind and your spirit and be ready. That's incredible. So all aspects, all aspects were truly impactful. It wasn't just like go build your body because that's what happens now. You know, I, I work a lot with, with, I work a lot in crisis and I work a lot with executives and there's this trauma that hasn't been worked through usually from a very young age and it's some sort of abuse or, you know, neglect or abandonment or whatever it happens to be, but they build one aspect. They don't look at building the entire foundation of where the loss actually came from. So it sounds like Bob did an amazing job doing that. He did. And he was very religious. So that was his spiritual side. Oh, go, go, go find spirituality. And, you know, for the mind, he's just like, learn everything. Like, learn everything. I'm like, I know. What, 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 I don't, what am I going to do? He's like, I don't care. Just learn it. Like, learn it all. Consume it all. So I read all about bodybuilding and, and biomechanics and psychology. And, you know, I went to, I went to college in, in prison. You know, it's like, because <laughs> I, you know, that was like what I thought I was supposed to do. Plus, once I was in prison, I woke up and I was like, wow, like I've had a lot of people try to help me and say, hey, stop doing this and stop doing that. And, you know, you got to quit this and you got to quit that. And, you know, I always thought, well, you know, there's something wrong with them or there's something wrong with the system or there's something wrong with, you know, everybody else. And somebody when, else. It's always somebody I, else. <laughs> yeah. When I sat in prison, I was like, oh, wait a minute. It's me. Like I'm, I'm, you know, it's always me. And then That's the second, 
Yeah. And then the second <laughs> thing was, uh, and this, this I when I do public speaking, I get a lot of feedback on, you know, you are what you are. You are what you do. And, you know, I always thought like, no, nah, that's not real. And, you know, I can just reinvent myself with the next group home or the next prison or the next thing. Or the next, and then you get to prison and you're all alone. It's just you. And you've got years with you. And I'm, you know, I'm sitting on the yard. I'm like, oh, this is terrible. I think I really, you know, maybe they're right. And I look out on the yard and all the kids that I used to run the street with and all the kids that I used to, you know, yeah, we're doing this. Everybody was in prison. <laughs> Everybody. And I was like, oh, this is not good. This is my life if I keep doing what I've been doing. And I was like, well, Bob's right. We're going to go change it. So when you started fighting... When you went the the very first time, tell me what was going through your head. Um, well, the very first time I did the fighting professionally was my tryout. And the tryout back in the day was you come to the school, it's a full day thing, and you have all these physical activities, and then you fight somebody. And so that was like the old school tryout. It's a, a method to make you really tired, see if you're in shape, then to beat the hell out of you. And if you don't quit, you're in. And so that was my first day of training. And it was done by my brother. And he, you know, I was a big, cocky, long-haired convict. And he didn't like me. And he beat the crap out of me. Like, he just beat your me. Your brother? My brother, yeah. Yeah, he beat wow. me. Wow. Yeah. And how's your yeah. relationship today? <laughs> we're good now. And, uh, you know, and after he became my mentor. But we're just, you know, talking about a time of sport development when the only requirement was that you were a tough guy. Like, that was it, because nobody knew anything else. The first thing was have the intention and be tough so you don't quit. And that was the first requirement. Second, you know, everything else we can build off of. We've come a long way, but that was the time. Exactly. I was going to say, and but you know what, though? The thing is, too, Frank, is, I mean, I could, I could talk about the parallels all day long. Okay, I don't want to do that. But it's literally the parallels all day long. Like, you can talk about this for business, and you can talk about this for personal, and you can talk about this for personal growth and leadership and humility and empathy. It's literally building this part of you is is becoming resilient. Yeah. Yeah. And, and learning to get your ass kicked. <laughs> yes. I like that. Another snippet. <laughs> By just, Frank and Stephanie. Right. Learn to get yeah, your ass kicked. Right. Learn to get your ass kicked. What are we doing today? I'll write the forward for your book. <laughs> That's no, great. but uh, Sarah Blakely's actually a friend of mine. And, you know, her dad had this great teaching tool. And he's like, you need to fail. How many failures do you have today? It wasn't about the other side because we're so afraid to fail and we're so afraid of this and we're so afraid of that. And I was afraid of getting my ass kicked until I did. And then I was like, well, that, you know, that wasn't that bad and I'm still fine. You know, what do I do now? Oh, I train. So that doesn't happen again. Yeah, I mean, I think I think fail fast, and I think that kids today or young ones today, I know it's something that I always coach and I always mentor is you have to fail. All you guys hear is all the successes, but, you know, like everybody brings up, you know, Elon Musk, everybody brings up Richard Branson, everybody brings up, but they don't talk about, I mean, I mean those guys do, they talk about all their failures, but the people that don't know about all their failed companies, all their failed relationships, all the times they had to circle back in personal times in their life, People don't talk about that. And I think it's amazing that you go, no, let's talk about the failure. Let's do it. Yeah. Well, my biggest fear, besides someone beating me up and me dying in a cage in a foreign country, is actually public speaking. Me too. So Right? So I was like, oh, my God, I'm like terrified of this. And I would, I'm, I would get hired to be a speaker. 
And, and I was like, I, and everyone's like, you could do this as a career. And all I could think about inside is like, I'm literally terrified. Like, why am I so terrified? So I was like, well, obviously I need to do this. Like, this is something I should be out doing, not running away from. These are, these are things to move through, not sit in the back and, you know, wallow in my fear. And so, you know, I took the stage. I was like, all right, well, let's move through this. You know, I still feel anxious, but I don't feel like I'm going to, vomit or poop my pants or anything like that that well that's good that's strong i'm I'm, I'm super happy about that you're like as i drink my green juice no i I really do though i really understand because um i had an incident many many years ago um in silicon valley because that's we just moved to the east coast right before covid and i had a very similar i you know i've always been a natural speaker i've always been fine with it i've never been like oh i'm great i'm i'm fine i get the information across i delivered okay and I was speaking at a, a, a small, not small, I mean, 3,500 for me, that was huge. 3,500 people. And I passed out. In no front of, way. Everyone. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Passed completely. I mean, I woke up with three EMTs. Did you do like a face dive? Like, was it like, oh. No, I went to the side, but they never the figured out why. Yeah. And I felt myself. Wow. Like, I felt yeah. like the sweat and coming And you exit down. the stage or did you just go right? No, I didn't make it. Whoa, I thought it was, I was a little, you know what? I was a yeah. little too cocky. And yeah. I was like, like I, I can get this. through this. I got this. <laughs> I got this. Yeah. And I like looking I, at the clock. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. I'm like, I had 13 minutes oh left. And I, wow. it's, it was crazy. And so after that happened, I, I would have an anxiety attack every single time. And finally, when I started interviewing for these jobs, like I was in, I was a vice president. I was a president of these different corporations of Silicon Valley. And I would literally just walk in and go, Hey, just so you know, I'm a single mom and I don't do any public speaking. If you want to keep talking, <laughs> let's have a conversation, but we're not talking about anything other than that That's right now. Like no. They're like, wait, That's what? Awesome. That's <laughs> funny. Like, just letting you know Thought I'd be honest. So, okay. I have some crazy questions for you. And I, I, you probably don't get asked this, and I don't know if you do or not, but again, I'm just going to ask. Do you ever feel guilty whenever you beat somebody to a pulp Yeah, <laughs> you on to. that day? Yeah, I used to. I used to feel guilty. What did you feel? It's really interesting because and this is early in my career because this was actually an emotional you know, hurdle and, and, and barrier that I went through personally. And what happened was, is in my second UFC fight, I fought a guy named Igor Zinoviev, and he was the undefeated world champion. And it was like unifying the world championship. So I fight him, I beat him in 20 seconds, and I break his neck and his collarbone. I end his career. Like I could hear all the bones breaking when he hit the ground. And so two things are happening. I'm like, hmm, I just ruined the sport because we were trying to get back on cable. I was the spokesman, all these things. And the second one was, and I just killed this guy. And... You know, I'm celebrating and I'm doing my role, you know, I'm champion and all this stuff, but I, I felt sick inside. I felt terrible because I was like, oh my God, I, I could kill this guy. So, um, Igor, I check on him. He's fine. Never fights again. 15 years later, we're sitting at the same table next to each other. <laughs> For 15 years, I felt this uncomfortableness and I'd gotten over this fear, you know, worry of hurting people because that's silly, but I hadn't gotten over what I'd done to, like, my feelings over what I've done to him. And he wasn't a part of my life when I went through this emotional transition. So sitting next to him, I said, Igor, man, I'm really sorry about what happened. I'm sorry that I hurt you. And I felt really bad about it. He looks at me, and he just laughs. He's like, Frank, he's like, it's a fight. He's like, what are you talking about? And I go, oh. He goes, it's a fight. 
Like it, it never affected him. He, he's like, what are you talking about? And it, it goes back to me. And the biggest moment of my life was when I realized like, nobody can kill me if I say no. Like nobody can physically do it. The rules won't let them, you know? So I can really go as far as I want. You know, I could give a thousand percent to death. Like I could go for it. And once I accepted that thing in my heart that I could do anything and I was unstoppable with it, it just he, when he said that, it just changed how I felt. I was like, oh my God. I was like, wow, this is all in my head. Like all of this, you know, we, we've all agreed to do this sport. We've all picked up a hammer or a sword or a fist or whatever. Everybody's in on it. And I'm the only one who's like, I really hurt that guy. I feel terrible. <laughs> I think that's super sweet, though. My husband tried to get me to watch the Connor whatever guy. Yeah. Like, had oh, an anxiety attack Lord. in three Did seconds. I was like, leg break? Oh. Yeah, well, only because it got put in my face by every kid I have. Like, you know, I couldn't I was like, watch it. I didn't watch it. I was like, <laughs> you're oh. like I couldn't watch oh, it. No, as soon as the, I would, I, it happened peripherally. And then they're like, his leg broke. And I was like, nope, not going to look. I, gotta, I don't want to participate. That's crazy. Tell me about the Chuck Norris and Bass Rutten fight. And what were you thinking and feeling when you walked in? Sure. Um, well, with the Bass Rutten fight, you know, he was my very first professional fight. So, you know, to put it in context, eight months earlier, I was sitting in Folsom Prison and waiting to parole. So within eight months, I'd flown to Japan, trained, become a professional. And then they're like, oh, you're fighting Bas Rudin. So I am beyond terrified. And the last few months of my training, I was living in Japan. So I lived in a Japanese dojo while on parole, waiting to fight this scary guy who every time I said, they said, who do you, who you come out there? Who are you fighting? And I would say, Bas Rudin. They'd all look at the ground. I was like, oh, in every culture, thanks. that's a bad sign. Like in yeah, every culture, they're like, I'm like, oh, this is terrible. <laughs> so I just had this, this crazy fear. But then when it happened, it was like a dream. And I talk a lot about this when I coach people, like with executive leadership and, you know, business management. I was like, when you're prepared and when you're in the moment and when you know what you're doing, it just flows. You know, and those things are just kind of ancillary. Oh, there's a problem. Well, let's fix that. No, 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 no. Uh, it's when you're not prepared. It's when you don't have a plan. It's when you don't, and then she just falls apart. And that 10-minute fight happened in like a minute. Like everything was like, shh. And then they like holding my hand up. And I'm like, that was the craziest thing in the world. So it was a weird, it was my first experience in, you know, what is, what is like flow or whatever you want to call that other state. And it was unmanageable because it was so much. Since then, I pulled it out. You can manage it. You can get better control of it. You know, your, your sensory, all that stuff. Um, when I fought Chuck Norris, it was my very first TV show. And so they're like, hey, do you want to fight Chuck Norris? Or do you want to be on Walker, Texas Ranger? And I'm like, yeah, come on. So I win the UFC middleweight championship against Tito. I retire. Two weeks later, I'm on set. And I'm fighting Chuck Norris on Walker, Texas Ranger, CBS primetime. And... Chuck is the nicest guy, the sweetest, stops entire production, like 100 plus people, and walks me around and introduces me and my wife to every single staff member production guy. Took like two hours. Like the whole day, oh, here's so-and-so. I'm like, oh, so nice to meet you. Just wonderful, wonderful people. And then um, the hardest 10 days of filming I've ever done, 12-hour days every day. You know, it's just amazing. And what I didn't realize is they'd flown me out a week early because they were so afraid I was going to hurt Chuck. Because they saw me doing the thing. And they're like, this guy's a killer. Like, we can't put him with, like, 
Chuck's our prize asset. So I didn't know, unbeknownst to me, I was showing up every day at these training sets. This is really weird. And uh, they sent a stunt coach. I had all these people teaching me so I wouldn't hurt Chuck. And then just to work with him and to go through the flow and to hang out with him. Honestly, one of the highlights of my professional life in all forms of entertainment, because I remember sitting as a boy and watching him and all his films and like, you know, just like so looking up to him. And then all of a sudden I'm, you know, kicking back with him in the cage in on his TV show. And I was like, this is, this is it. Make an unforgettable impression the moment you walk in the room with Executive Presence Elevated. This program is an exclusive and intensive online program designed specifically for you and led by me, Stephanie Malik. After 25 years as a business transformation and crisis specialist, I've learned just how integral Executive Presence is to gaining you the influence, prestige, and recognition you deserve and desire. Whether you're a mid-level manager looking to advance to the next level or an entrepreneur looking to inspire confidence in your investors, this program will transform your belief in what is possible. Find out more by going to stephaniemalik.com forward slash elevated. What a memory. That's like, that's amazing. Yeah, it was, I mean, hard to top, like hard to top in my, in my career. So talk to me about being in the ring and starting to feel as though you're losing control. So for example, losing control, how do you calm your nerves? How do you not panic? More so not so much your body right now, but your brain. How do you calm down, refocus, and get back to basics? Well, it really goes down to the training, like, because that's what keeps your mind focused, right? It's, it's the development of your brain under those situations over terms or times or different areas. And, you know, we talked about that first fight. The reason why I couldn't control everything was just too much. You know, I had no understanding of what it was or what to even do with it. And so it was overpowering. I just put my head down and went, okay, I'll do exactly what I'm told to do. And I'm just going to run and do it. The cool thing about fighting is you have a corner man and he can feed information into your brain, right? So you have this sort of lifeline. And, you know, that's something a lot of times you don't have when you're a business leader or you're the guy on the stage or you're the guy making the call. Even You're though lonely. all this stuff is going, that. yeah, even though I call it, you know, a 10x situation, even though it's times 10 out there, I'm trained and tuned to hear this information. I'm trained and tuned to perform a certain way under these situations or, or what, whatever comes at me. And it's really that training and then having someone there, having someone to rely on, mentor, coach, whatever that is. That's what makes it doable for me. And then weirdly enough, like I can tune into my corner's voice and hear them above all else. That's incredible. I don't think weirdly or oddly, I think that your EQ is just completely off the chart. I think you're able to tap into your self-awareness and your emotional regulation and focus in, which is just amazing from a fight standpoint, from a competitor standpoint, but also too from a leadership standpoint. I think you handle crisis and panic so proficiently because of the training that you've had around emotion. Sure, yeah, I would say that. So was Ken and Bob, were they your primary trainers through all of this? Um, No, Ken was my first trainer for the first five years or so. And after that, I split off. And then I started seeking my own knowledge and kind of going on my own, my own journey. Do you guys have different styles? Yeah. Yeah, we came from the same style. So Ken taught me his style, which is submission wrestling, pain craze type style, um, more of a grappling based type style. And so I was originally taught that. And then 
as the sport continued to evolve, you know, I was quested to go find more information. So <laughs> Ken was battling with the jujitsu guys and he's like, well, go find more information there. So I was, cause I was kind of the nerdy guy. <laughs> so I went to, I was always in search of information. And then, you know, because I had this martial arts mindset, I was always like, okay, well, what is the goal? Oh, to create a perfect fighting system that uses the least amount of energy with the most amount of damage that's, you know, perfect for your body. So that to me was the goal. So I was always pursuing that goal. And whether that was with my people or whatever. And what happened eventually with Ken was that goal became a problem with his progression because he didn't have the information and he wasn't interested in getting it. I don't care about that stuff. He's like, I'm doing this, but I was on this other goal. So that's what kind of separated us. And then from that point on, it was just like, I knew what I needed. I just didn't know where to get it. And so I would search out the best wrestler, the best this or the best that, and I would orchestrate that strategy and that understanding of the styles and the combat and the whole thing. That's amazing. So, you know, obviously the show is primarily about obstacles into opportunities, and we've already covered so many of them that you've gone through at such a, a crazy young age. Do you mind if we talk about the the falling out with your family in 1998? Sure. Okay. So I saw that you and Ken had a fallout and that you guys really didn't speak again until Bob got sick. Number one, how much time was it that went by? And did you feel an ultimate loss by not having kind of the two biggest supporters in your life through this time? Yeah. So I think it was like about 10 years where we really didn't talk. And, you know, I think we, we, we all really have responsibility in it. I mean, my responsibility just was that I wasn't um, I was on this mission, what I thought was the mission, you know, create this thing, do this thing, you know, do this thing. And, you know, there came a point when, you know, I realized that, you know, Ken was, he wasn't on that mission. You know, he's like, no, no, I'm tough. Like, I'm going to do this thing this way. And, you know, I was put in a, a leadership position of other people. And I was like, well, I can't lead them with inadequate information. Like, it doesn't, you know, so I was getting into this kind of weird situation where I was, seeking other information and other leadership. And, you know, when it came time to really talk about it, I didn't have the skills to sort of deal with it. And I just let it go. Like, I literally was like, well, you know, if I can't figure this out. And then my dad was like, you know, hey, this is, this is how things work. You know, it's Ken's way <laughs> or it's the highway and you need to fix this. Like, this is how things are. And I didn't feel like that was the right, I didn't feel that was right. And so I just kept going on my journey. And I was like, well, you know, I know he's always going to love me. Like, you know, I'm always going to love Bob. Like, we're always going to be the family. But yeah, but I didn't want to be in a place where, you know, I was being subjugated or, you know, asked to do things that weren't what I was taught were right. So I was like, well, this doesn't make sense. So yeah, so I bounced out. And then, um, and then I kind of went on my own after that. Interesting. Okay. And so then when 10 years is... I mean, that's a lifetime, especially with all the things that, have, that, you know, have happened in your very short life. What happened? When did you get the call and who did you get the call from? I got a call from, maybe I got a Facebook message from Ken's brother, Ken's half-brother. We have like a mutual half-brother, Robbie. And he just said, uh, Bob's real sick. Uh, you got to check in. And um, so him and I had kept contact, but we I just wasn't in the family and stuff. So I didn't, I didn't really know what, what, it, what had transpired since I'd kind of left. You know, I saw Ken at events. Sometimes I saw my dad at events, but it was always like weird. And we were like on separate, excuse me, we were on separate 
teams, basically. So yeah, they're like Bob Sick. And so then I called um, Ken's ex-wife, Tina, and I asked her about it and tried to get some information and stuff. And and yeah, he, you know, he had a bunch of heart attacks. You know, he just stopped, he stopped caring for himself, you know, kind of in his mid-40s. Wow, that's so young. Yeah, when his wife left and, you know, he just kind of, you know, he just kind of broke a little bit. And, he's, you know, he just stopped eating good. And, you know, he told us what to do, but he wasn't doing it. <laughs> he wasn't right. following it. Right, for sure. So, yeah. So you get the call, you call Tina, and you get some information. What's your next action step? How do you reach out? Well, I just started talking to one of our old fighters and asking him about it and, you know, what was going on. He was saying, that, you know, Bob's moving in with Ken and he's got care and kind of everything's good. And, but, you know, everybody was like, you should go see Bob. You know, now's the time to go see Bob. And I was like, oh, yeah, I see Bob. So, yeah, I, I never saw him. And, you know, he was good for a little while. And then he kind of had another one. And it's kind of, you know, slowly faded on the health side. Right. Do you have regret for not seeing him? Totally. Yeah. 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 That must be really hard. I've had I've had similar situations where where that's happened. And, and as time has progressed and I have evolved as a human, I then go, I probably could have handled that a little better. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's one of the one one regrets in my life. And, you know, I, I think the biggest one, and this is what I always counsel people on, is like, you just can't take it back. Like, you can't go, oh, yeah, no, I'll go to the next one. There's just, <laughs> so, uh, there's always, um, there's always only one. So that is my big regret. It goes back to how fragile our lives are and how you just never, ever know you know, when that last moment is going to be. And so you have to treat others like it's their very last time you see them. So I can imagine how hard that must be for you sometimes. So let's talk about being a single dad. Can we talk about Nicolette? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So single dad, for how long? How old is uh, she? It's been, a, it's been a couple years now. My wife and I separated okay. a couple years now. She is 13. That's a fun age. Mm. Yeah, we're doing boys. Uh, we're doing rock oh, and yeah. roll. Um, we're doing girl drama. There's a lot going on. That's awesome. I just wanted yeah. you like I wanted I want to like just be a fly on the wall. It's so cool. Honestly, I just love it. And you know, before like she wanted to hang out with me. Now she doesn't. She just wants me to drive her from place to place and give her the credit and card. Don't talk. Which, yeah, which is fine. So I have a you know I got a giant mom's card. It's full of girls. We're just doing stuff. You know, twenty four seven. And it's actually, oh uh, it's really cool, yeah. That's awesome. So I have two girls, and um, that was some of my most fun time is just listening to the conversations from oh, point man. A to point B. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's fantastic. <laughs> and they've gotten really mature since we've hit the eighth grade. Like, it went from, you know, we went from Disney, like, we're, we're over here in the, like, Netflix TV MA. Like, it went really, oh, really fast just in the past, you know, year or so. Okay. Tell me about your parenting style. Uh, my parenting style is I'm very relaxed. I'm pretty systems, you know, routine oriented, but I'm really spontaneous. So it's like, as long as the stuff is done, you know, we're, we're, we're out screwing around. She has to clean her room. She has to do the basic stuff. And, but she's really what my daughter's very well behaved. I'm a big explainer and storyteller. So since she's been little, she had no idea who I was or that I was even a fighter. She thought these were all stories that dad would tell her. So I'd tell her Japan stories, and there's always a lesson in the story. And so, 
you know, she didn't find out until maybe two years ago that these were all real stories. Dad was really this person. So for her, this is kind of crazy fantasy world. I'm strict on the schoolwork and the bedtimes and, you know, the, the basic life stuff. But other than that, I just let her run around. Has there been a time yet? I know she's only 13. I'm reflecting in my head when, when things started to happen. This is a clean show, so I'm going to do my very best at... at <laughs> a lot of stuff happens show. when you're 13. I, right? <laughs> so let's start with my husband walked out the door to go pick up our oldest son from soccer. And we had just relocated. And I, I could tell that my younger daughter was a little agitated about something. She was in eighth grade. And she kept re- constantly reminding him of, of when the soccer practice was over. Not like we hadn't done this for five years. But kept saying, you know, don't be late. Don't be late. And so I was um, making dinner and the girls were doing their homework. And you hear the front door close, which is my husband leaving. What they didn't hear is they didn't hear my husband walk back in because he had forgotten something. And then they quickly my youngest one quickly asked me what a term with two letters was in high school. And I was cooking, like I was stirring and stirring. And I remember just very calmly turning around and I was getting ready to answer the question. And I saw his face and he's like, and he said nothing and turned around and walked out the door. And then I got 700 text messages. So why is that? Exactly. <laughs> Right? He said nothing. But here's the thing. Again, completely transparent. I tell them. I tell them everything. If they come to me and they ask me the question, I want them to hear it from me. Whatever conclusion they draw from it, you know, whatever. That's disgusting. It's gross. Oh my gosh. Wow. That's great. Whatever it is, at least they have the right content and context from me. So I wonder in your situation how this might go. <laughs> well, uh, I'm I'm a teacher and an explainer. So I'm like you. I just tell, find the age-appropriate uh, version slash story. And uh, yeah, I just tell her, tell her like it is. I think that's so awesome. And it's going to be so fun for you, the amount of content that you're going to have doing this together with her. By, by, I mean, I know that there's a lot of other people involved, but by yourself, the unit of you guys just being together, I can't even explain to you what this is going to turn out to be. Like, talk about memories. I know. I can't, I can't wait. And, you know, all my friends, you know, fighter guys, and they're like, ah, oh, you know, they're boys and this and that. And my son is 20 years older, so he's 33 now. And wonder, you know, it's wonderful having a baby boy and just great experience. But for a man, having a little girl... It's like the literally the next level human experience. And it's been so fulfilling and so empowering um, to both of us, you know, because for the first time, like I, you know, I, I grew up without families. I don't really know how these things work. But when you hang out with someone and you, you know, have a relationship and you see them grow and stuff, it just becomes this wonderful exchange of, of love and exploration. And, and yeah, there's a lot of questions where I'm like, hmm. Yeah, let me let me think about that for just one moment. <laughs> I'll give you my cell number. You can text me. <laughs> It'll be like, I'll be right back. Hang on, honey. <laughs> well, my daughter, my daughter's found her time. It's while driving, because driving's like that kind of in. Like you know, you're in, but you're not. You're stuck, but you, you know, you can kind of you know. So that's her thing. She she uh, 
we get those drives in there with LA traffic and she'd be like, say dad. <laughs> and I'm like, and you're like in your hands grip and you're like, <laughs> hit me, yeah, go ahead. Cool. I'm ready. It's cool. Does she notice yet? I'm guessing from, from such an emotionally intelligent father, does she notice and pick up when you're down? Does she notice and see when you're off a bit and try to get in and talk about it? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. She's very much a uh, check-in and, and big hug on the way by. But yeah, I mean, we, you know, we hang out a lot and yeah, what I, uh, this is what I tell, you know, when dad's asking me about it, because most, most men don't get to have this life experience. They have a daughter, they go to school, all these things. Da, 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 da. Well, my daughter was born, I retired. So I was I've been home every day. I'd go to everything. Like, you know, she's never experienced a life where dad comes home on the weekends. Dad's always home. You know, dad, Dad's a text away and he'll drive you there, do this, you know, whatever. But it's been such a cool experience because it's made us so close. And then I get to be a part of all these little developmental things. You know, we're doing rock and roll now and, you know, the, the clothes have gone dark and the hair's gone short and, and ratty and like everything. <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah, yeah, no, sounds great. Like, oh, you need a rock and roll poster? Of course you need one. Let's, let's get one. <laughs> <laughs> let's go get that. <laughs> No, but, yeah, I but I mean, that's the thing. You 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 nailed it because that was, that was my next question is what's the one or two pieces of advice you'd give a single father? Because you're right. I have many friends that are divorced. And, and by the way, amazing dads, like incredible dads, even like when they don't have their kids, they're still at all their soccer tournaments and their meets and everything else. It's such a different experience to not do the handoff, to not have any alone time, to not have any downtime, to be involved in bra shopping and wait till the underwear changes and like all of those different kind oh, yeah. of fun yeah, things. Yeah, we did, we did the underwear upgrade already. Yeah, you're like done, <laughs> stuff done. I'm like, what's happening there? <laughs> yeah, I'll never forget. I'll never forget in a million years and my husband was like, oh, these are hot. And I was like, that's great because that's your oldest daughter's. Put them away. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, thank you. Oh, disgusting. <laughs> gross. Yep, that's, that's life. <laughs> so what's the advice that you would give to these uh, to these single fathers that are taking on this very interesting chore, responsibility, adventure? Uh, I mean, it is a special journey as a single dad. That is 100% certain. So, you know, what I find most valuable is I ask a lot of questions of a lot of moms. <laughs> it's like, what about this? And what about that? <laughs> I'm sure they're like, oh, here he comes with the questions. <laughs> But I'm a guy, like I'm not having those experiences. I'm just so far removed from it. So I find that, you know, asking, getting advice, uh, especially parents that have girls same age, that's been super helpful. And then I would say my biggest piece of advice that I got, single dad, all dads, is difference with boys, you smack them on the head, you squirt them with the hose and they're just fine. You know, <laughs> they go right back to it. Girls, especially when it's dad, you know, they remember the things that dad says to them. And when it's done with anger or frustration or, you know, when it's done in, in places that aren't in mentorship, guiding and love, it, it can hurt little girls. And that's one of the things I never thought about. And then my niece, you know, sat me down and was like, hey, listen, I want to tell you something about little girls. And I was like, whoa. So it's definitely changed how I approach my communication. You know, I think a second, I'm like, okay, you know, how's a little sensitive girl turning into a lady going to absorb this important piece of information? So that, right. that and, was a and huge And who one. is she going to choose because of how you spoke to her and 
how you reacted and the words that you chose and all of that is so right on. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my best dad thing, which I never knew until I had a, my girl. Awesome. Okay. So we're running out of time, but I have a few more questions. What's one question that no one ever asks you that you really want to talk about besides the green juice and the tree frog? <laughs> um, you know, no one's ever asked me about my feet. Your feet? Yeah. Well, let's talk about them. Yeah. <laughs> I know they're not like extremely attractive or anything. They're just feet. But, you know, if you stand on soft mats on your toes for about 20 years, it completely changes the structure of your feet and your how your spine sit, like everything. And so I actually wear orthotic slippers all day long. Really? Yeah. Invented by a friend. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. That is, that's actually, that's actually, seriously, that's really interesting. Yeah. So I have a, a little bit of a funny story that I think you'll find hysterical. So again, I told you where I grew up. So there was a bodybuilder in town, which I, I know that, you know, we were good friends. He was much older than I was, but he was kind of, he lived in a house and my aunt and uncle lived a couple doors down. So I saw him very frequently, very sweet guy to me, maybe not to others, but I always loved and adored him. His name is Dan. And Wait, Dan um, Freeman? Yeah. Oh, I love Dan. He's very sweet. Yeah, very sweet. I mean, very, very sweet. I, but again, I wasn't, I wasn't somebody that he would date or anything. I was like a little sister. And he was competing in all these martial arts things, and he was competing in all the bodybuilding things. And, you know, they have all these pictures and everything. And he had just won this huge competition. And I was walking by, I think, walking the dogs, and there's people outside the house, and they were all talking. And and I saw the picture of Dan, like, in a pose and everything else. And I remember I looked down, and I'm like, ew, his feet. <laughs> And he looked at me and he's like, my feet. He's like, really? I was like, how do they spread all weird like that? Like, it was so funny. Like, literally in front of all these, like, you know, six guys that are, you know, you know, their houses. And I'm like, ew, his feet. Best part is, like, guys don't notice any of that stuff. Like, guys are like, what? Feet? What? 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 Oh, he's only got one foot. Like, guys are so clueless. To th and girls are like, look at his feet. Look at his yeah. elbow. What's wrong with him? Yeah. It's like, what's going on there? Yeah. So it, it was oh actually. Gosh. That's God, funny. it was. I, 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 I mean, you know, however many years ago that was. I was a bazillion years ago. But it was just so funny. So when you say your feet, I told I get you. No, because you get you. weird knots and pressure things and things grow. Like, just, just, they're just gross. And there's like, different colors. Yeah. There's different colors, Frank. <laughs> there's different, different colors. colors. <laughs> I'm just oh saying. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'd like to say I have good looking feet, but I probably won't be a foot model anytime soon. Okay. I want to see proof of that. <laughs> so I'm just letting you know. Not right now, but at another time, I want to see proof of that. What is the most favorite fight that you've ever had? Uh, that I was in? Yeah. Oh, definitely the uh, Phil Baroni fight where we fought on Showtime. You know, it's just one of those kind of magical nights where, you know, two things had happened. I'd hurt myself. My, my knee was blown out, you know, and, and I couldn't finish camp. I really just kind of finished camp, like laying there, like meditating. And I'd lost a fight before on via disqualification. So like everything was up against me to like, win this fight, got to win this fight. And so when I walked into the arena, I just left the doctor and he's like, listen, Mr. Shamrock, there's no way you can fight. Like you have no knee tendons. Like <laughs> you shouldn't even be walking, you know, like, what Your are you feet. doing? I'm like, no, I'm going tomorrow. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> and so as I'm walking in, I'm, I'm like, 
you know, all these thoughts are going through, man, the doctor's saying this and that, and, you know, everyone's like, that's impossible. There's no way you can do this. And, you know, I just felt like, I'm going to do it. Like, it, it, you know, like nothing was going to stop this moment. I was like, you don't understand. It doesn't matter. You know, I'm ready to do this thing. And, you know, and when I, walk, when I walked into the arena, I felt like I had so many moments of growth and challenge and, and whatever. And this was like going to be the biggest physical and psychological challenge that I could ever do. Because I, like, I literally had no knee tendons and I, could, I couldn't even walk. And so, you know, I was like, this is impossible, but I can do it. And it was like just this belief. And so as I walked in, I just kept growing and growing and growing. So, you know, during the fight, you know, he should have just beat the crap out of me because I, I could barely move. But he didn't know that and no one knew. And I had this persona and this energy. And um, even as I got tired and I could feel like, you know, oh, I'm withering away here, that confidence never left. Like that feeling of the impossible never left. So, you know, just that moment for me was magical. And then I do crazy stuff. Like I tell him I'll put him to sleep and I point at him and I do all this, you know, just crazy artistic things that, you know, wanted to come out and were kind of looking for the moment. And so for me, like that was a really big fight moment for me. Because everything came in, the psychological, the physical, you know, the performance, like everything, even though I was broken, that was a perfect performance. And it's a great fight to watch, too. That's amazing. Who did you not get a chance to fight that you would have loved to be in the octagon with? Uh, just my brother. Just Ken. Yeah. I think that, you know, I go back and forth on whether, you know, it would have been a value thing for me. But it was something I really wanted to do. And for two reasons. One, he was my master. And it's somewhat inevitable at some point you will outgrow or become equal or, you know, stray from your master. But I kind of felt like, for whatever reason, you know, he gave up the mastery. You know, it's like, we, I, we still needed more. And he's like, nah, we got enough. You know, good luck. <laughs> so for me, like, as a, as a student, I was like, my master. So that was really hard for me, you know, just as a person, like, just to kind of experience that. But conversely, he was my master. And he taught me how to fight and help give me all of these things. And at the end of the day, I was like, how do I give back what he's given to me? And the only way I could think of it is, I'll beat the hell out of him, give him $10 million and he can ride off in the sunset. Like that's, that's the world <laughs> I come from. That makes perfect sense. So, <laughs> so you guys are both going to come out of retirement and do this fight. Well, we, we tried for years and I just, I couldn't, it was one of the deals to your point. I couldn't put it together. A lot of it was our emotional stuff and our positions and how we felt about it. Like it was all this other stuff that got in the way of what could have been something really cool, you know, for everybody. So that's my, that's my regret. What's the hardest lesson that you've ever learned? Block with two hands. <laughs> yeah, block with it. Maurice told me. We're training one day. He's like, you got to block those with two hands. I'm like, what? He's like, he's going to break your arm. I'm like, nobody's going to break my arm. Like, you know, guy broke my arm. So, <laughs> so, yeah. It's those little lessons, though, because when you, when you go back and look at it, here I am, this great fighter with this amazing coach. And he literally stops to give me an important piece of information. And in my hubris and ego, I, what are you talking about? There's the lesson. Yeah. So that was my biggest, biggest lesson. Sounds like coaching in the ring and coaching outside right. of the ring. <laughs> and that's the beauty of martial arts is you get that instant feedback. You know, it's yeah, like, donk, exactly. oh, that, 
It didn't really work out. <laughs> I'm going to try punching some of my clients in the face and see if maybe it's instant feedback. Uh, yeah, instant feedback. Thank you for well, telling me that. That's yeah. awesome. I think I'm going to well, try you're, that. You're going to love this. And maybe this is something we could try because uh, I got a call one day to do coaching for Google. And it's like the G Tech team. It's like the high, the, you know, everyone's got 25 plus years of leadership experience. And they're like, we need you to bring the team together. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm in. You're so all I, Ken? I spin, Dan? <laughs> exactly. We need to get the boys Tree together. Tree frog guy? <laughs> yeah. They bring everybody in. But what I ended up doing is writing them an entire curriculum based on bare knuckle boxing. Because I was like, no, 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 no. You, there, there needs to be some instant awareness, risk, knowledge and then we all need to be in communication about that because that's where real high level business is like that's where we're at and they were like love it and i took the team through it was just extraordinary to watch these you know just super executive people just completely fall into this world of bare knuckle boxing and then be like oh you're right like that's fantastic and then to take away something really valuable from it which was self-defense and you know knowledge and self-awareness and so yeah uh, to your point a bare fist flying at your face will elicit amazing results. I think so. I think we should collaborate, number one. And number two, I think that that is growing up in Silicon Valley and growing up in many different executive positions, vice presidencies, presidencies, et cetera, running a global consulting firm for 16 years, starting a new firm. It's almost five years old, okay? All I've been around is executives. So venture capitalist, executive, C-suite, you know, you, what, you name it, board members. I think that, so I'm talking about me. I'm drawn to you from your voice. I'm drawn to you from your calmness and your strength. And I'm drawn to you because it's new. So like you go in and everybody wants to talk about different ways of, of business empathy, or they want to talk about connection empathy, but they're not drawing any relation to anything else outside of business. And I think that you make such valid points in going through real world experiences. Like, no, this is, you have to, you have to tie it in. Cause if you tie it in, people get emotionally connected to it and they start using it. It becomes a tool for their arsenal of tools. And then they start recalling things that they don't even maybe necessarily know. Hey, how did I remember that? Because you made it so incredibly interesting and so different. Yeah. Different is good. Risk is good. Fun is good. And then, uh, something new I think is, has been really valuable. One of our girls from that training session got robbed at gunpoint at an ATM machine. And it was exactly like, she, uh, she explained it exactly as we went through, like in the course. I was like, what is, what is the risk? What, what are the values? Like, what is the, what, what's at risk here? And she's like, and she, she goes, yeah, three guys jump up, they pull out a gun. And she's like, so I remembered the course. And all I could think of was how quickly can I get rid of these people? So one of these scared kids doesn't accidentally shoot me with a gun. She's like, because I'm not risking anything here. Terrified. But because we'd gone through situations similar, she's like, yeah. I just went, oh, yep, yep, here you go. <laughs> yep, yep, thanks. Have, have a great day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it almost becomes it almost becomes matter of fact. You know, it's yeah. not like an emotional reaction. It's like, what do I need to do to create safety? Yeah. What do I need get to do to get situation. out of this situation? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, this has been so, so fun. I have loved every single minute of it. If people want to see more or, or look at your work, where can they find you? Um, I am everywhere at Frank Shamrock and frankshamrock.com. And on YouTube, I am the Frank Shamrock. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining today. I really appreciate it. This has been great. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
Thanks for listening to Spin It. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to hit the subscribe button to be notified when a new episode is released. The best way to support the show is to leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast app. And if you want to hear more from me, hop over to Instagram and follow me at Stephanie Malik. That's Stephanie with a Y, S-T-E-P-H-Y-N-I-E Malik, M-A-L-I-K, or visit my website at stephaniemalik.com.